0: Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. In the hands of waiters, three seconds left for three.
1: Friday, May 22nd, Nick Whalen here with Alex Barutha. Alex, we have a couple news items to get to uh, before we dive into our first NBA 30 and 60 in quite a while. We're going to look back at one of the first ones that we did this past season. I think we we published it September 12th of 2019, of course. So this was a kind of a preseason 30 and 60 where we asked two questions of every team. And at the time... You know, we were still a month or month and a half away from the start of the season. So we didn't know how those questions would shake out. Now, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we can kind of look back and see um, what the results were of those questions. But first and foremost, I, I woke up today to some pretty troubling news. And it's something that's, you know, kind of one of the lead stories on SportsCenter, as, as I have it on in the background today. Uh, Jerry Sloan, longtime coach of the Utah Jazz, passed away at age 78. Uh, He was battling Parkinson's. He was battling dementia. Um, So, you know, obviously somebody who, in terms of the modern coaches, somebody who spanned multiple eras, you know, coached until 2011 with Utah. He's fourth all-time in total regular season games coach behind only Lenny Wilkins, Don Nelson, and Bill Fitch. He's fourth on the all-time winning list, a coach with a winning percentage north of 60%. I was really surprised, Alex, when I started digging into Jerry Sloan this morning that despite coaching twenty-six years in the NBA, somehow never won coach of the year.
2: Yes, that's really surprising. I would have assumed he would have won it at least once. He won a target coach of the months. Um, yeah, but you know getting to the NBA finals <laughs> right more important. He uh, got to the NBA finals twice with the Jazz, uh, obviously, and continued coaching with them after Stockton Malone and um, you know, I think for us, one of the main things we remember was him just quitting abruptly, and it being rumored that he and Darren Williams were clashing.
1: Yeah, and they kind of chose Darren Williams over him, it seemed. And then shortly after, Darren Williams was was shipped to the den the then then New Jersey Nets. Um, so kind of a a difficult end, I guess, to his tenure. But Sloan was sixty eight at the time that, that he stepped away, uh, in 2010, 11. And, you know, at that point, I I think the run that the jazz had had, you know, towards the middle or end of that decade was, was kind of coming to an end. Um, so in some ways I think that made sense, but, uh, like I said, I was just surprised, you know, the the amount of winning that he did, you know, when you, when you're reeling off 55 win seasons, virtually every year for a 10 to 15 year span with those great Stockton Malone teams, you'd think once you would, you would get a coach of the year, but, Uh, That was not the case. Uh, Either way, a you know, an all time legend, a guy who's already in the Hall of Fame, uh, the basketball Hall of Fame. um, Tough to see Jerry Sloan go. In other news items, we have a little bit more clarity or at least another update um, on, on the NBA's return to play for this season. And over the last two or three weeks, Alex, I would say it seems to be moving in a more positive direction. There was a while there, like at the beginning of May, where. It was starting to look a little iffy. We had certain players, certain retired players coming out and saying that maybe they wouldn't be comfortable with the league resuming. And it was really hard to imagine the league pushing through if, you know, someone like Chris Paul or LeBron James came out and said, I'm not comfortable playing. Uh, Luckily, last week, you know, the opposite happened. And, you know, a coalition of many of the NBA star players came together and appeared to be at least united in the belief that they want to finish the season And it sounds like now in about a week and a half around June 1st, we should get an official update from the NBA and things appear to be moving in the right direction. uh, And it's starting to look like uh, Walt Disney World has emerged as what would be the primary site for finishing games, whether that means the regular season, part of the regular season, jumping right to the playoffs. That much is still unclear. Uh, But I I also we we talked off air about this. I I think they're going to need two sites for this. Right.
2: Probably, yeah, and it would, it, I mean, I guess, first of all, it would be weird if June, at this point, with all the news that's kind of swirling around, it would be weird if June first came, and they were like, no, this isn't happening, uh, uh, so it's it sounds like we're we're very much, you know, some games are going to be played, the context of which we still kind of have to figure out, but yeah, um, the, it, it sounds like we do need the two locations, because you would put, you probably don't want all 30 teams, in one spot you know Orlando Walt Disney World is uh coming out as like one of the I guess you would do Eastern Conference there and then potentially try to do Western Conference somewhere like Las Vegas which is the other place that people have thrown out as as a location
1: I guess I should clarify too that if they need two sites that would mean that the NBA is going to try to finish at least part of the regular season I think if they do jump right to the playoffs then it would obviously be at one site. You know, I don't think you'd want to be flying back and forth from Vegas to Orlando um, you know, just for a playoff series. So, But it does seem like the possibility of finishing the regular season or at least getting to that 70-game mark for the NBA local TV contracts seems like a much more distinct possibility now than it did even a week ago. And I think that speaks to just the availability of testing. I know the league sent out a memo on Thursday uh informing teams of like four or five different labs to get into contact with and kind of start planning for for tests to purchase or potentially purchase. And, you know, non playoff teams were included in that. So I, I think I, I don't know, but my guess right now is that the league is really going to make an effort to at least get to 70 games for each team. Um, I, I think the question is, do, are they going to be met with any resistance? You know, I, 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 think overall the message from even players on teams like the Cavs has been, we want to play, you know, we're, we're basketball players. We love the game. We still want to finish the season, but what about the warriors? You know, are, are, are they going to be obligated to throw Steph Curry back out there? Who's virtually, you know, virtually missed the entire season due to injury. Um, I, I think there, there are some questions logistically like that, that need to be answered, but I, I get the sense that, 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 more than likely we will have all 30 teams playing games at some point, maybe in late July.
2: Right. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if the NBA went forward with five more, I guess, quote unquote, regular season games that maybe didn't count towards record or weren't against the opponents that were immediately on the schedule. Cause if we have to do a two location thing for Western and Eastern conference, if that just makes the most sense for, um, you know, uh, like quote unquote bubble reasons, like, if the if the Grizzlies are meant to play the Bulls, can you just replace that with, you know, like the Suns or whatever, the Grizzlies versus Suns instead in the Western right. Conference? And um, do we even count those towards the record? Do you try to find teams with comparable records and and stuff like that? So there, there are some things that need to be sorted out, but it really is encouraging that it sounds like they're going to at least try to get... Competitive basketball against NBA teams uh, back um, for for every team.
1: Yeah, the notion of maybe not counting those games against the record is an interesting point. That's not something I thought of, and I, I think there's a world in which that makes sense. Especially, like you said, if the if the league is basically split 15 and 15 in two different sites, and you're likely only playing teams that are at your site, there's a you know there's almost 100 chance that the schedule is not going to work out as as it was originally planned so the, the question for me though is like if you don't do the like if the games do count for your record and you know potential playoff spots are going to be up for grabs like you know what if the pelicans were supposed to play i, I don't have their schedule up right now but what if they were supposed to play the hawks two more times over their final 12 games and instead they have to play the lakers because that's how the schedule works in this new situation you know what i mean like i think it it at the end of the day, I think the goal is to just play the games, and at some point—we've we've kind of said this all along—at some point, the league's just going to have to tell teams, like, look, it's not going to be fair. Suck it up, basically, because we, it's better than nothing. Um, but that, those are some of the hurdles, I, I think, that they're eventually going to have to encounter.
2: Yeah, and because— well, that, that's a good team to bring up because, you know, we were all kind of watching the standings between the Grizzlies and the Pelicans who the Grizzlies had one of the hardest schedules remaining and Pelicans have one of the easiest schedules remaining. And you want to find a way if the regular season games do count for that to be reflected and give the Pelicans a fair shot. But at the same time, I think we're I mean, to some to some extent, we're past like the idea of fair. And uh, I think it's more about scraping the monkey together and just everyone kind of accepting that this year is not normal and that congratulations you're in the eighth spot when (laughs) when the season shut down it just kind of is the way that it is
1: yep so a lot to sort out and like i said we should get um some more information uh right around the end of this month or at the beginning of june I, i think the nba will start to lay out some much more concrete plans um compared to to the kind of pieces that we've been getting from Woj and shams you know every every week or so All right, let's get to the 30 and 60. Uh, Again, we're looking back on questions that we posed for each team back in mid-September. So quite a bit has likely changed with a lot of these between then and now. But we begin at the top of the alphabet with the Atlanta Hawks. And the two questions that we asked back in September, one, what are the ceilings of Trey Young and John Collins? And two, will DeAndre Hunter or Cam Reddish emerge as another core
2: piece? Yeah, Trey— Trey Young played so well this season that asking that or looking back and seeing that question seems kind of ridiculous now. But he was coming off. I mean, you have to remember, like the first month or two of Trey Young's rookie year was horrible. And even though he he fixed things towards the end and looked great, there was always kind of that wonder of which was the real part. Is it just going to average out into what he averaged in his rookie year, which is basically 20 and eight, which is obviously good, but it wasn't that efficient in the end, but this year made the all-star team basically average 30 and 10, John Collins averaged 20 and 10. So I don't think any questions remain about those two guys. I mean, I think there's probably questions about their defense respectively, but um, you know, as far as the rookies go, Reddish looked good towards the end of the year. Kind of had like a Trey young esque rookie uh, rookie season where it was horrible at the beginning. And then he, he pieced it together and then Deandre Hunter just looked like a, you know, he just really didn't do much, but I, you know, Um, I guess that's kind of what they drafted him for was to be a role player.
1: Yeah, that was all well said. I think Reddish, um, you know, we didn't really get to, he uh, started to turn it on right after the all-star break, had a nice run before the season was suspended and kind of cut short. And, you know, we were unable to tell if that was just like a random hot streak or something that was, you know, in any way sustainable. And we really might not know with him until next year, but at least got some encouraging signs. Towards the end of the season, the Boston Celtics. Our first question was Does Gordon Hayward ceiling uh, or does Gordon Hayward represent the ceiling of this team? And can Boston get passable minutes at center? And do they enter the Brad Beal sweepstakes?
2: Well, they definitely got passable uh, minutes at center. I, mean, I think Tice played pretty well. Cantor was okay. Um, seems like they. I mean, I think the Tatum for Beal swap was the possibility. Tatum started playing so well that was not going to happen. And Gordon Hayward had a, a good season, but didn't quite make that leap into an all-star again. But Boston still played very well.
1: Yeah, I, well, I think to answer the question, like Hayward did not represent the ceiling of the team. He was a little bit better than he'd been the last couple of years, but I think their ceiling was raised just by Jason Tatum, right? And, and Jalen Brown even, maybe being the better player, up until January or so, when, when Tatum really took off. So I, I think I think we were kind of wrong to gauge them by Gordon Hayward, and instead it was it was really all Tatum and Brown um, that that made this team one of the best in the East. In terms of the Beal thing, I think that's still out there. There was a story in the Daily News yesterday uh, about the Nets being interested in Bradley Beal. I, I don't think that's even really a story. I think everybody would be interested if he becomes available, but the Celtics are one of those teams that could put together – a really appealing package um, if they're willing to part with someone like Jalen Brown. I, I think Brooklyn has you know, Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie that they could throw in, but I think Jalen Brown as an individual asset tops all of those. All right, the Brooklyn Nets. Speaking of, our two questions for the Nets. One, will Kyrie alienate his teammates and can this team stay healthy? Uh, and will DeAndre Jordan stunt the growth of Jared Allen? I'm finding that we're like finding creative ways to sneak in a third question for a lot of these.
2: <laughs> well uh yeah Kyrie and Spencer Dinwiddie seem not to like each other very much or Spencer Dinwiddie seemed to kind of throw out some weird sentiments about how he felt about Kyrie and Kyrie himself didn't stay healthy and Karis LeVert didn't exactly stay healthy so both of those kind of came to fruition and then Jared Allen not getting uh, I mean Jared Allen DeAndre Jordan basically split minutes so in some way I think the answer to I think is growth growth was somewhat stunted but that was kind he was of also replaced a, uh, in the starting
1: lineup as soon as they fired their coach <laughs> yeah that's true yeah this, these, these didn't go well i think Kyrie alienated some teammates he also got hurt and you know I, I mean, we didn't expect durant to play this season but that played a big role um and we've, we've talked a lot about Kyrie's injury issues but i think he was he probably missed even more games than anyone expected like what did he play like 24 games
2: uh something around that yeah I mean, at this point, Kyrie is very much in danger of being the guy who alienates his teammates but then isn't on the court. Like, <laughs> you know, not a good... Yeah, he played 20 games. So, I, I mean, he was great and when he played, but the shoulder injury thing was weird, and, yeah, it was not particularly uh, good.
1: The Charlotte Hornets. Oh, boy. Our
2: first question. Can
1: an NBA team be relegated to the G League? Our second question. Will Terry Rozier go full Antoine Walker. I, I think both of these ended up turning out more positively than we expected.
2: Yes. Rozier had a good season, uh, he but he kind of got, he kind of got um, overshadowed by Devonte Graham, who we did not consider at all. And almost nobody yeah. considered at all. Uh, uh, he was Graham the one. On who based full Antoine Walker. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but Devonte Graham basically saved this team from becoming a G league team. And, uh, P.J. Washington, also solid, but ultimately the team is very bad.
1: Yep, you said it. I I mean, they were this year's version of the Hawks for me, where last year I was like as low as possible on Trey Young. So a month into the year, I'm like going around gloating, you know, how terrible he is. He's I can't believe they picked him where they did. And of course, he turned it around and they ended up being a pretty respectable team. And Going into last year, like, I thought I thought the Hawks could win, like, 11 games. And I felt the same way about Charlotte. Like, we were talking about this as, like, the worst roster we could remember. And I think they won, like, two of their first three or three of their first four. And obviously, they turned out to be a bad team. But um, as far as bad teams go, they were they were a lot more respectable, uh, I think, than both, of that, both you and I expected. Yep. The Chicago Bulls. Our questions for the Bulls. Can Zach Levine be the best player on a playoff team? And is this the core going forward?
2: As much as I love Zach Levine, I am not... I don't think he can be the best player on a playoff team. He's a passively efficient scorer who, like, needs the ball. Though he shouldn't need the ball because he's a good three-point shooter, but plays no defense, isn't, like, a great playmaker. It's just... It's the kind of guy you want to be like your third option or maybe your second option if your first option is like extremely good. Um, and then the core is kind of confusing. Like, I like marketing I like Wendell Carter Jr., but all these guys really haven't played that much time together still. Like, everyone keeps getting hurt.
1: Right. I, I think to go back to the Levine question, the answer is no until he leads them to the playoffs. And they really weren't close this year. And I know injuries were a part of it, but. You know, year after year, the the actual really really good elite players in the NBA get their team to the playoffs no matter what. And I don't think anyone's confusing Zach Levine for LeBron James. But you know, I mean, the numbers at least are 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 there in terms of scoring, and it just hasn't translated to wins. And like you said, with the core, there's just so many injuries. It's tough to tell. We we didn't get a good look at Lori Markinen yet again. We didn't get a great look at Wendell Carter. Um, I think there's still a couple pieces away. The Cleveland Cavaliers. Question one. Is trying to recreate the Lillard McCollum dynamic a smart move? Question two What will become of Colin Sexton?
2: I don't even really know where to start with this one. Um, I think Sexton had a better year than a lot of people will give him credit for or even acknowledge that mm-hmm. happened because I don't know how many casual NBA fans really even remember that Colin Sexton exists. Uh, but he was good 21 points on 17 shots. Still isn't a passer. Still doesn't really play defense. And Darius Garland just didn't really do much of anything at all. Um, and I, I'm just not a believer in that style of backcourt. Just like two undersized guards. It, it kind of depends how good of a you know bounce back year or sophomore year uh, Garland has. But I just this is it's not the way I would probably construct a team.
1: It's really tough. We like the the Blazers have done it about as well as you can, right? I mean, I think. If Sexton and Garland become Lillard and McCollum, that's like the ceiling of all ceilings for those guys. And the Blazers still haven't won anything. You know, they went to the West Finals last year and looked way in over their head. You know, I, I think it's just really tough to construct a team like that, especially if you're working with, like, the poor, poor man's version of Lillard and McCollum.
2: I think that's a dynamic you have to—you you, you can't—you almost can't start with that. Like, it, you have— you luck into that if you if you try to start with it. I think you have to like acquire that. Like I think you need one of the guards, and then you have to bring in another established guard. I don't know if you can like grow that together through rookies. That's that's a huge gamble.
1: The Dallas Mavericks, will Kristaps Porzingis stay healthy? And does Luka Doncic have another level? Or could this be a Ben Simmons situation?
2: Well, Porzingis was healthy. I mean, for the most part, he sat out some games, um, mostly due to rest. But he yep. and his season started off a little slow, but he played well. And then Doncic Doncic took things up another level. Um, I, I would say twenty nine points a game, um, more assists. Um, I mean, he was he was obviously fantastic.
1: Yeah, I was a little disappointed with how Porzingis started, and you know his overall you know, field goal percentage isn't great for a guy of that size. You know, he's, he still spends a little too much time away from the basket than I would like, but. He had that run from the end of January through about mid March, 13 game span, where he averaged 27.7 points, 11 rebounds, two and a half assists, two and a half blocks, one steal, 40% from three on nine attempts per game. And I mean, they were rolling during that period. Donchus missed a little bit of time. And that's when Porzingis, you know, really showed that without Luca in the lineup, he could be a legit number one. And he's maybe not, if he's your number one for an entire year, you might not win 60 games. But Um, That really showed me something with him. And I I think that with another year under their belt next season, if Porzingis can stay healthy going forward, um, this is going to be a a super dangerous team in the West. That kind of goes without saying. Um, And then to finish up on the Simmons question, I think just made it pretty clear that he has another level. I think now the next question is, does he have another level to go from here? Because he, he clearly made a jump from year one to year two.
2: Yeah, I mean, he uh, I, the main thing for him is just kind of cleaning up his scoring efficiency and taking fewer just like contested step back threes. Uh, yeah. But I think that's just kind of a, a product of the teammates around him. Like the third best option on a team is still Tim Hardaway Jr. Yeah. And so a lot of times I think you're, you just want Doncic to try to make something happen rather than have Tim Hardaway Jr. try to force something to happen late in the shot clock.
1: Right. Yeah, the, the the timer, by the way, is just becoming like a guideline at this point. If, if we have to go over, we have to go over. The Denver Nuggets, how will the non Nikola Jokic pieces develop, and do the Nuggets have a big trade to make?
2: They, I mean, what we saw from Michael Porter Jr. was awesome in yes. the limited time that, that we saw from him. As far as the other guys on the team, Jamal Murray kind of continues to, like, have those games where he, it seems like he's going to break out, he's going to break out and he's slowly improving throughout his career, but he kind of hit a wall this year in terms of improvement. And and Gary Harris does, I mean, he just keeps getting hurt, et cetera. Will Barton is who Will Barton is. So maybe they have a trade to make, uh, they obviously didn't make it this year, but if Michael Porter Jr. is like the real deal, then this team will definitely be fine.
1: Yeah, I mean, they made a trade and with that being Malik Beasley, Um, and I think that was kind of going in the opposite direction of maybe what we thought, you know, in some ways they, they like shed a a contributing player who they made up their mind they were not going to pay going forward, which is fine. Um, But they they also have the firepower to make a bigger trade down the road if they want. And the problem is that's probably going to involve Michael Porter. You know, if you're talking to someone like a Brad Beal or, you know, if Ben Simmons wants out of Philly, somebody like that, like. Michael Porter is going to be the starting point for a trade for another star.
2: Yeah, I mean you would Michael he's like the kind of guy you would potentially trade for Bradley Beal or something like that.
1: Yeah, and honestly I don't I don't know if they would do it. I mean I I would personally but I, I think they're Denver's as high and not Michael Porter as, you know, as they should be. The Detroit Pistons, speaking of a team in the complete opposite position. Our first question was <clears throat> Will resting Blake Griffin to keep him fresh for the playoffs prevent the Pistons from actually making the playoffs? And question two, will waving Michael Beasley unleash a centuries-long curse on the franchise?
2: I mean, question two definitely came true. Uh, And Blake Griffin really didn't need to be rested because he hurt his knee immediately and the season was over.
1: Because they waved Michael Beasley. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I don't even have much to say about the Pistons. We can, we're can. we 15 seconds into discussing them. If you, if you want to just move on, that's fine with me.
2: Uh, yeah, let's, let's catch up on some time.
1: Okay. The Golden State Warriors. Question one was, do you have to guard more than two players on this team? Question two, how do they weigh going for it versus managing Steph Curry's workload? And do they cash in on the Russell asset at some point?
2: I think we kind of hit this one on the head. Um, I think this was probably the point when we had to ask these questions. That like I realized exactly how bad this team was, and the going for it thing versus Curry's workload that quickly fell on the wayside because of his injury. But and they did cash in the Russell Russell asset for exactly who they was rumored uh, to be the person they were targeting, which was just like the Russell for Wiggins swap.
1: I mean, that emerged later in the season, of course. But imagine. Back in July, when they when they first acquired D'Angelo Russell, if somebody was like, man, I, I, they're going to flip him for Wiggins, like people would have freaked out. You know, <laughs> they were like, what are you talking about? And somehow eventually and this goes back to what we talked about on last week's pod, where you, you kind of said like the Warriors have become the Spurs in how people talk about them. And I, I think if like Orlando had traded Aaron Gordon for Andrew Wiggins, we'd be like, what are you doing? Why do you you know, this is a nothing for nothing. But because it's the Warriors getting Wiggins, they just they get the benefit of the doubt that other franchises don't.
2: Right. And, you know, it can also, I mean, that's a trade that can also, you know, easily be spun into, well, they already have two guard, like two elite level scoring guards. Do they really need a third? Why don't right. they just like get a more diverse roster and, uh, you know, just try to rehabilitate Wiggins value?
1: Yeah. The Houston Rockets. One, this was an obvious one. Will the Westbrook Harden tandem work? And two, can Houston get anything meaningful out of Daniel House, Eric Gordon, Ben McLemore, and Austin Rivers?
2: I mean, I think the westbrook Harden dynamic worked. I, don't, I can't really say it didn't work, um, but they basically are going to end up this year with the same winning percentage as they did last year. The one thing we didn't really anticipate was them trading Capella and just going a- as small as possible. Um I guess to answer the question more directly, Daniel House was better than I thought he'd be. Eric Gordon got hurt. Ben McLemore better than I thought he'd be. Austin Rivers continued to be Austin Rivers.
1: Yeah, that second question we are reaching a little bit. I mean, Eric Gordon was hurt. Um, I mean, Daniel House I really like a lot. I think he's probably one of the most underrated players in the entire league. So they got good production out of him. As far as Westbrook and Harden... You could argue that maybe it didn't work early on, and in some ways, the fact that it didn't work all that well forced them to trade Clint Capella. Uh, but after that, it worked really well, and they're they're going to be one of those teams that whether we get regular season games or go right to the playoffs, yeah, they're the team to me that is like the biggest wild card of the of the non like non LA teams, non Bucks basically, um, just because of the variance that they can bring to any game
2: yeah and they i mean this is the definition of a team or two I, I guess a team that like the floor for regular season wins insanely high uh when you have these guys in your team but they also epitomize the question of these are two guys who just have not cons- have not got it done in the playoffs routinely and have a lot of times gotten exposed you know through their inefficiencies or their flaws and so at the end of the day like putting these guys together, what's it going to mean? And maybe we'll get some of that this season if the season resumes. But these guys are under contract for so long that we just need to see them in the playoffs because we know what they can do in the regular season.
1: The Indiana Pacers. Are there enough playmakers on this team slash Victor Oladipo's health? You know, two very related questions. And how well will the Miles Turner, DeMontis Sabonis front court work?
2: I, I mean, I think that question was kind of putting into we were wondering how good Malcolm Brogdon actually was. I think that was kind of the the more direct way of asking about the playmakers on the team. And he was pretty good. I mean, you know, sixteen points on thirteen shots, seven assists to only two and a half turnovers. He had a hot start and then kind of slowed down. Um and then when Oladipo came back, wasn't very good. Uh, but you know, they used Sabonis as a playmaker a lot of the time. Uh, and Sabonis Mega's first All-Star team, and I think the Sabonis-Turner dynamic is still kind of a work in progress. But I'm not—I mean, if I was the Pacers, I probably would just keep them together. Personally, I—I I think a lot of people have differing opinions on that, but I think it's a lot cleaner than like a Simmons and Bede dynamic.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that they're a tough team to evaluate because we—we we really never got to see the real Oladipo this season. So I think it'd be tough to justify really blowing things up or making a structural change when you probably don't feel like you had your overall best player for any part of this season. The L.A. Clippers. Will the Clippers be able to contain the league's top centers? And how does Kawhi handle playing alongside another
2: star? I mean, the second question is fine. I mean, him and Paul George were, were great together. Um, they also didn't play that many. I mean, they, they didn't play as many games together as we'd hoped um but you know knowing how many games Kawhi rest paul george got hurt um but they played well together and then i i didn't i don't know off the top of my head how they did against league's top singers but they didn't necessarily do well you know they're and so i think for them and they might lose montrez harrell in free agency this upcoming or this free agency so we'll see what they do there yeah i think they need to brace for
1: losing harrell and they're, they're probably a team that looks to sign, you know, a, a patchwork kind of veteran and maybe just make the position, um, you know, a timeshare between Zubac and whoever that might be. Um, you know, obviously, they're a wing, a wing dominant team with Kawhi and, and Paul George. And I, I think they're fine with that. In terms of Kawhi playing alongside another star, as we expected, I think totally fine. You know, Paul George missed a lot of time, so it wasn't. You know, they didn't necessarily have that, like, awkward adjustment period early on just because PG wasn't in the lineup. But, I mean, Kawhi, even even though, like, he has a high usage rate, he is fairly ball dominant. Like, it doesn't feel like he is in the same way that, like, Harden or LeBron seem like they always have the ball. Um, and I, I think he just, you know, he brings it on both ends. He's just an easy guy, if you're a teammate, to to respect his game and kind of mesh alongside. The Los Angeles Lakers will a lack of dynamic guards matter? And does LeBron genuinely believe in his roster slash? Will they regret holding out so long last summer for Kawhi Leonard?
2: I think they do regret it though. I don't know if anybody will ever admit that. Um, I mean, they played so well that it's hard to say like their lack of dynamic guards mattered that much. They're 49 and 14 top of the Western conference. Um, and they pieced some stuff together with like Danny Green. You know, Caruso is a meme, but he's actually a good player. And um, I mean, I just, <laughs> extremely successful season. I don't know what more to say.
1: Yeah, I think to answer the first question, no, the lack of guard depth didn't matter really at all because LeBron stayed healthy. And when he was in there, you know, he was able to control everything and it was fine. Obviously, they, they suffered when, when Ronda was out there without LeBron at times. Um, but I, I also agree with you. I think, you know, hindsight's 2020. Obviously, if you have a chance to get Kawhi, you're not going to take yourself out of the running for Kawhi. And by all accounts, they were right there, and there was a good chance that he was going to end up there before the Paul George trade happened. But in hindsight, you know, had they been able to spend that previous four or five days, you know, stocking up on like mid-level free agents instead, and you know, adding another like two guys who are on the caliber of Danny Green, I think there's a case to be made that this team would be even better. But Overall, like you said, they're, they're at the top of the West. They're the Vegas favorite right now to win the title. I, I think this is the position that they wanted to be at the beginning of the season, and they probably wouldn't change too much. All right, the Memphis Grizzlies. Which position should Jaron Jackson Jr. play long-term? And is John Morant the prospect that we think he is?
2: Well, I mean, the, the, the second question is you know pretty self-explanatory. He's going to win yeah. rookie of the year. He was... Awesome highlight player, you know, I think was a better three point shooter than some people anticipated. Um, As far as Jaron Jackson, I mean, I would put him at center, but, you know, mostly just to have him near the rim uh, because he's such a good shot blocker. But I, he can I think he can also just survive as, you know, a guy who plays both four and five and just whatever the team needs. That's where he can play.
1: I think the problem with him is the fouls were still a major issue. And that was like a, I mean, he was like the best fouler in the league as a rookie and marginally improved only as a sophomore. And yeah, I, I'm with you. I think even though he can shoot the ball on one end, like you, you want him to play away from the basket on offense, but you want him closer to the basket on defense. Not that he can't go out and guard more athletic guys, but I think that would help his rebounding numbers. He's not a great natural rebounder. Um, and he's just a good shot blocker. Like you said, he's versatile. Um, so I, I think long-term he's at the five, but As long as Jonas Valanciunas is on your team and in your starting lineup, you kind of have to play Jackson at the four just because Valanciunas is so clearly a five and has no other spot that he can play.
2: Yeah, according to basketball reference, it was basically a 50-50 split for Jackson this year, which I think is fine. I think that works because, you know, Valanciunas, I mean, I'm also like a Valanciunas. I'm very pro-Valanciunas. So I think like having him and Jackson on the same team actually makes a lot of sense. The Miami Heat...
1: Can Bam Adebayo be more than a really good energy guy? Uh, will Tyler Hero get arrested at a GEZ concert? And is Jimmy Butler as good as he thinks he is?
2: Oh, my God. Well, the Adebayo thing is... Adebayo was incredible, first of all. Yeah, uh, really good energy. Another, un- yeah, extremely good. Another guy <laughs> like Trey Young that you look at this question and you wonder, like, what were we thinking? But Adebayo is also, like, a top three candidate for most improved, so um proved it there and then Jimmy Butler I mean Jimmy Butler's three-point shooting is a huge concern but he did pretty well as like the number one guy on on a team he got to the line a ton um I don't know I mean I don't he's not the guy I would want as my number one option but he is doing as good as uh an impersonation of that as I think is possible
1: yeah, for sure. I I think the Adebayo one is a no-brainer. Obviously, he's an all-star caliber player already. Jimmy Butler tanking his three-point percentage was strange, but I, I think he's probably as good as he thinks he is. Maybe eh, Actually, no, I don't I don't think Jimmy Butler is as good as he thinks he is, but I still think he's a very good player. And Tyler Harrow has not been arrested uh, at a Easy concert or otherwise, although getting those like cornrows a couple weeks ago, I feel like, uh, you know, that kind of answers this question in a different way.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: All right. The Milwaukee Bucks, how did Chris Middleton and particularly Eric Bledsoe respond to expectations and do the Bucks have the top end talent to get past the Philadelphia 76ers? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: first of all, Middleton and Bledsoe were great this year. Um, yep. They both responded very well. to Expectations. Uh, Middleton, one of the best shooters in the NBA at this point, is, uh, uh, was his 0.1% away from being a 50-40-90 player in terms of field goal percentage. And then, uh, I mean, as bad as Philly was in the regular season, I actually don't think that the second question is necessarily answered. I think if you put them up against each other in a playoff series, it would still, it's hard to imagine it going less than seven or six or seven games. And the games that they played in the regular season against each other this year... I think, you know, kind of speak to that.
1: Yeah. One more note on Middleton too. I mean, his, his minutes declined. He played his fewest minutes since 2014, 15, barely got over 30. And those picked up over the last few games uh, that they played before the shutdown, because Giannis was hurt. Like he was well under 30 minutes for much of the year. And despite that still had his best scoring year, his most efficient year. Um, I, I think he answered the critics maybe even more so than Bledsoe did and we'll see, you know, we'll see what, how the, the, the new structure of how these playoffs are going to play out, I think is going to make it really tough to evaluate. But I, I think, you know, in mid-March when the season was suspended, I think anybody who roots for the Bucks felt really good about their chances to get past Philly, probably better than they did back in September when Philly, at least on paper, looked like they had constructed this like huge, awesome roster that was built specifically to beat Milwaukee. And even though Philly did actually beat Milwaukee at Christmas Day, they just never strung together uh, like enough of a, a really good stretch that you felt like they were like I, I think there's a case to be made that like Philly's like the third biggest threat to Milwaukee in the East, just based on how they played.
2: Yeah. I mean that's that's a that's a good point. I, I still think the matchups are would make fans nervous. Right. You know for Milwaukee, but based on how both teams played, Bucks played over expectations, 76ers played under.
1: Right. The Minnesota Timberwolves. <clears throat> How long can Minnesota hang around the playoff picture? And at what point do they consider selling everything but Towns? And maybe Robert Covington.
2: <laughs> uh I mean they really were not hanging around the playoff picture. They finished nineteen forty five, although Towns, for the first time in his career, missed a bunch of time and they end up they did end up dealing Covington.
1: Yeah, how long can they hang around the playoff picture? Like, a week and a half, I guess, was the answer <laughs> to that one. They were out of it almost immediately. Um, yeah, I mean, back then, we we kind of considered Covington to be maybe a foundational piece for them. And I think it just got to the point where he's on such a good contract that it inflated his value to the point where they felt like it was worth it to make that deal. Um, and we had one other question listed here, which was, how much would Wiggins want in a buyout? <laughs> and luckily, it never came to that. But, uh, they, I mean... At least you'd rather get D'Angelo Russell, I guess, than just straight up buying him out.
2: Yes. Also, how many players do you think started at least one game for the Timberwolves? 13. 18. 18? Yeah.
1: Oh, my goodness. Did they have any players who didn't start a game?
2: Uh, Yeah, they had, like, five. Jeez. Uh, Bates, Job, Jordan Bell, Jalen Noel, Alan Crabb, Jared Vanderbilt, Jacob Evans.
1: My goodness. Okay, let's let's move on. I don't want to talk about that anymore. The New Orleans Pelicans. What does a healthy Alonzo Ball look like outside of the Lakers bubble? And can Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram coexist?
2: Alonzo well, can shoot threes now, which was all his career really needed to for you know to become a passable like starting point guard in the NBA. So he did that, um, and then Ingram and Zion seem to coexist pretty well although we didn't really get much of a sample of that before the, the season shut down
1: yeah I think that second question is the bigger one and I, I think they can definitely coexist like you know I, I don't think it's going to end up being like a it's either me or him situation down the road just because right. Zion especially is such a unique player and even Ingram showed a, a, a better capacity as a playmaker and a passer and and certainly an outside shooter this season that like I don't think their games are going to clash but it's worth noting that Ingram's usage rate scoring went down quite a bit when Zion came back. So I, I think that's maybe the bigger question is not can they coexist, but like what does it look like when they play out an entire season together? Like can they kind of find a a point in the middle where they could both get theirs?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I really like all these players, you know, individually, but I, I mean, the fit isn't perfect because you want ball – you know, to have the ball because of his passing. Uh, But that's mostly in the, in the, in like transition. But you also want the ball in Ingram's hands because you don't want to regulate him to a spot up shooter. And then Zion kind of needs the ball to be effective because he can't shoot at all. Uh, So, I mean, Zion's such a unique player, it complicates things, but obviously so good that you just try to, you know, maximize his talent.
1: So this brings us to the New York Knicks. Question one was, what will be the priority, winning or development? And a very disheartening question two
2: was, is this Julius Randle's team? I mean, I I we played a whole season, and I think it was Julius Randle's team. I mean, uh, I mean, other than the fact that Marcus Morris technically averaged more points per game than him on the Knicks, which was also very weird. Um, yeah, I... I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess development, you have to say development, right? But um, they didn't necessarily do a great job of, you know, developing their players either. I mean, they got Barrett 30 minutes a game, which was good, but they still only got Mitchell Robinson 23 minutes a game. They couldn't find more than 20 minutes for Frank Nilakina. Kevin Knox is dangerously close to being out of the league when his rookie contract is up. Dennis Smith, I have no idea what's happening there. And they didn't even really play Braz Dacus that much, who actually like. They only got him, like, 100 minutes, or 50 minutes, actually.
1: Yeah, so that's why I think the answer is winning. Obviously, they didn't win many games, but that was the priority. That's how the roster was constructed, at least. And even though they played R.J. Barrett a lot of minutes, they they still prioritized guys like Randall, guys like Portis, guys like Taj Gibson over arguably their best asset in Mitchell Robinson. And I think that said a lot. Oklahoma City. Question one: How aggressively will OKC shop Chris Paul? And question two: What's the asking price for Stephen Adams and Danilo Gallinari?
2: I mean, these questions kind of inform. These were the expectations of the team, where both of our questions were like, "Who? How are? Who are they going to trade? Like, you know, how are they going to blow this team up, get assets?" But they ended up being good, and it seemed like they didn't really shop Chris Paul at all, or any of these other guys. So. I mean their their season went very different than most people expected.
1: Yeah, there was some talk of maybe parting ways with Gallinari just because he's expiring. Um, I, know, I know Miami was interested, but that nothing ever came to fruition there. And you know, I think at the time of the deadline and still probably now, you know they they feel great about where this team is at both now and in the long term. Like I think Chris Paul, even even though like as he gets older, his value will decrease, you know proportionately. I think his value is higher now than it was at this time last year when he was a younger player, if that makes sense. Like he played so well that it kind of like supersedes the fact that he's a year older. And I don't think he lost any value. So whatever Chris Paul trade you could have made in September, I think you could still make this summer if you want to.
2: I think so, too. And you can understand them not wanting to trade any of these guys because, you know, in the playoff race, they were about to play. Uh, Utah in the first round. And I'm not saying OKC would win, but I think they would feel pretty good matching up against Utah player to player. Obviously, Utah is the better bench, but I am pretty sure that would be a competitive series still like if you're Oklahoma City. And it's just a good boost for the organization and I guess for the fans to where you get rid of Westbrook, you get rid of Paul George. And you didn't really miss that much of a beat. You're playing Utah yeah. in, the, in, the, in the playoffs again and you're looking to be competitive. So, I mean who goes to them obviously
1: right and i mean there's 16 games above 500 i i think it could have been a different story if they were like memphis or orlando you know where you're they're bouncing around like you know they're in the eight and then maybe they're in the nine for a week and then they're up to the seven like they were legitimately in the four through six range all season so there was never really a point where it felt like they were playing over their heads i guess and I, i think that that played a lot into them maybe not selling off because they were playing well at the time that the season shut down. Like, it was conceivable that they could have climbed as high as three in the Western Conference. I mean, they're only two games back at Denver in the loss column. All right, the Orlando Magic. We only came up with one question for them. We couldn't even, they were not interesting enough to get two. And that one question was, will Aaron Gordon get traded?
2: No, he didn't.
1: Uh, All right, let's move on. <laughs> he did not get yeah. traded. The Philadelphia 76ers. Can Joel Embiid hold up over 100-ish games? Of course, counting playoffs. And how much does depth matter with this starting five?
2: Well, I mean, Embiid played 44 games. So that's kind of... I mean, if you prorate that to you know, the, the, the full season, he would basically be his third straight season of playing about 60 games. Uh, so that seems like he's still not it's still there's no confidence in him being able to play 100 games at this point and as far as the depth goes i mean they didn't really have depth um you know they relied a lot on uh like they really relied on forking Corkmaz and mike scott and shake milton like a lot so i think it mattered um but yeah i mean it just underperformed entirely Yeah. And the way that
1: we phrased the question, you know, how much does depth matter with this starting five, meaning like the starting five is so good, you know, can, can they get away with being top heavy? And I think the answer was no, because Al Al Horford just wasn't who we thought he would be. He he looked like he really took a step back. And that was, that was kind of the big thing, you know, like coming into the season, it was like, they have two guys who have given Giannis the most trouble of anyone in the league and Embiid and Horford. Now they're on the same team, but, it just—it never really felt like Horford hit hit his stride, and and like you alluded to, Embiid was banged up, and it was it was kind of a weird injury this time around. I think he had like a hand or a wrist injury, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. But they were still gonna—I mean, they were still gonna rest him anyway, right?
1: But... Yeah, yeah. I think a hundred games was a little ambitious, even even if they had made a run to the finals. Like all those games adding up, probably don't get to a hundred. The Phoenix Suns is Devin Booker ready to grow up as a player? And did the Suns finally found, or did the Suns finally find, I should say, a competent supporting cast?
2: Booker uh, Booker made the All-Star team. He had a great year. Um, one of the most efficient, um, like, uh, top-level scorers in the league. Uh, also stayed a pretty good playmaker. Um, the supporting cast question is kind of complicated, because I actually think their supporting cast is pretty good. Like the starting the starting level yeah. talent on the team, Rubio, Aiden. I like Mikel Bridges. Um, Sarge is kind of questionable, but you know that Kelly Ubre. Um, their bench is just terrible, and Aiden missing the first chunk of the season because of steroids was obviously a huge blow for them.
1: Yep, the Aiden thing really threw them off, especially in a season where the 25 games he missed represent almost half of the games that they played. So I think that made it really tough to evaluate. But yeah, I mean, I. I really like Devin Booker a lot. I think until he actually makes the playoffs, people are still going to look at him as, like, the the Southwest version of Zach Levine. And I think he's like – in the minds of most, he's closer to Zach Levine than he is, like, Paul George or, you know, whoever it might be. Um, and he's going to have to win for that to change. It, I just – even though, like, I feel like this is like the fourth year in a row where you look at this roster and you're like, I really like a lot of these guys, but it just doesn't translate to wins for whatever reason. And I don't necessarily think Booker is at fault.
2: No, I think, I think it's hard to, it's, it's, it is really hard to blame somebody when they are scoring that efficiently. You know what I mean? Like, I, I understand there's the, the argument that you should be spreading the shots around more, but I, I just, I, I don't think it's his fault. I just think, you know, it's a, this is what happens with a lot of these, you know, scoring guards, Beal, even Levine, Booker, um, McCollum, even there are guys in the league of this player type who will just never get the respect of fans or the general NBA media until they like get to probably the Western Conference finals or the Eastern Conference finals. And until then, people just view them as like this non-winning scorer. Right.
1: Not a guard, but I think it's really similar to Towns in Minnesota, where the numbers yeah. are incredible. Like, it's not like Carl Towns is shooting 25 times a game and, you know, scoring at a 40 percent clip and he's just chucking up shots like he's he's doing everything he can, at least offensively. And it's just still not working. And it's it's kind of tough to pinpoint exactly what the issue is. Um, but like you said, I, I think I, I think even for Booker, just making the playoffs is a huge step. All right. The Portland Trailblazers. Can Hassan Whiteside stay focused, and is Zach Collins actually good?
2: We didn't get the Zach Collins answer because he got hurt, and I would say Hassan Whiteside stayed focused uh, and had a very good year, Uh, but the team just wasn't good, wasn't really that good.
1: Yeah, too many injuries. I mean, I I think, at least numbers-wise, this was, like, the best possible case for Whiteside. You know, from a fantasy perspective, I know we were pretty pretty skeptical just because – you know he lost his starting spot last year. He dealt with injuries in the past. Obviously, has a, a long track record of just being a weird guy. I'm just going to put it out there. But I mean, 16 points, 14 rebounds, led the league in blocks at 3.1 per game. He, despite only averaging 0.4 steals per game, was still second in the league in combined blocks and steals totals, behind only Anthony Davis. And he was not far behind. So, in production wise, he was really good. He shot efficiently. He was about 62% from the field. I think this worked out about as well as it could have for Portland, but just too many injuries elsewhere on the roster.
2: Yeah, Melo was extremely underwhelming. Although, you could argue that it was about as good as you would get.
1: Yeah, I was, I was overwhelmed.
2: <laughs> right. Um, I, they just got Trevor Ariza too late. That's another thing. Not that that would have swung them, but Bazemore was like horrible for them. He had some decent games like once in a while, but I thought Bazemore was going to be better, and then Also, I think we need to, you know, Amferi Simons, Uh, not the chosen one, Uh, not an untouchable asset, probably, as he was touted before the year. Uh, So, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, getting 24 total games out of Rodney Hood, Zach Collins and Joseph Nurkic was a pretty big hit. And like you said, Simons, you know, not that they necessarily needed another guard because he was never going to start with Lillard and McCollum on this roster, but I think they really thought that he could be like a super six man and whether that means they keep him long-term or he becomes like a, a possible trade asset, uh, that just never happened. And we, we didn't have that as one of our questions, but, um, in a year that was, that was marred by injuries. I think that's kind of like a, a low key disappointment for them. All right. Sacramento, can Luke Walton find a rotation that pleases everyone and maximizes their depth? And is Marvin Bagley as good as he seemed toward the end of last season?
2: The first question is a hard no, considering Bradley B Be- or uh, Buddy Heald got benched. Yeah, um, yeah that that's definitely- yeah, a that's I don't even know how we anticipated it that well, because that was unbelievable that that happened. I, I don't think their depth is maximized uh, okay. at all. And uh, Marvin Bagley had a foot injury that basically, you know, Derailed his his whole season. So the uh, the second question the question is still kind of to be determined.
1: Yeah, I mean this this went off the rails pretty quickly. I, I think they they had a nice year last year. Like the Kings are basically the Jaguars of the NBA, where last year was like the Jaguars' run to the the AFC title game a few years ago came out of nowhere, much like the Kings' run to the ninth seed in the Western Conference. And like everybody's like, hey, they're they're maybe turning things around after. 15 straight years of incompetence and they immediately reverted to being the Kinks this year. All right, the San Antonio Spurs. Will San Antonio find enough three-point shooting to stay afloat? And how will DeJounte Murray mesh with Derek White?
2: Well, I mean, they were... I'm trying to look this up here. Yeah, I mean, they were 28th in uh, three-point attempts. So, no, probably... (laughs) I guess is the answer to that. Uh, And then, you know, Derek White kind of fell off a little bit. And DeJounte Murray, they still didn't, like, let him loose, you know, because he was coming off the injury. So both those guys were kind of stuck at 24 minutes for most of the year. Partially because they also, like, you know, uh, Popovich is contractually obligated to give Patty Mills 24 minutes a game. Yep. Uh, So, you know, I I mean, I'm still high on on Murray, but the question of, like, is he going to match with Derek White seems kind of, like, off-base considering what happened for the year.
1: Yeah, I think we were maybe a little high on Derek White. He, he had that nice playoff series against Denver and, and played pretty well down the stretch last season, but never was able to find that this year. And <clears throat> Murray had his moments, but I feel like they were mostly on defense. Like, he's as advertised on the defensive end, but yeah. the the offensive game, which, you know, we had kind of heard throughout his year of rehabbing, it was, you know, he's reworked the jump shot. It looks really good. The Spurs are so excited about this guy. And it it just kind of fell flat.
2: Yeah, I mean he you know he shot thirty eight percent from three, which is obviously good. <laughs> um, and like you said, he he had his moments. Like his final, you know, his final stretch of the season, basically his last eleven games, he was averaging you know fourteen points, you know, like two steals, five assists, six rebounds. Like that's kind of what we expected from him. Yeah. Uh, so I think next season. I, I'm expecting good things from him next season, but I don't even know what the Spurs are going to look like next season.
1: Yeah, they're they're in a really interesting spot. I mean, this this year, in terms of win percentage, they were twenty seven and thirty six. Um, so that's like a forty three percent win percentage, which is their lowest since 1996 97. And I mean, that's they won 50 games or at least forty seven games, sorry, from every year. Uh, between that and and last season, so a major major drop off. Even with the season being suspended, I don't I don't think that's enough to, you know, for them to enough of a variable, I guess, for them to to really cling to much. And you know, I, I think the Lamarcus Aldridge Demar Derozan pairing has at least like kept them relevant and kept them afloat. But I think they very seriously have to consider basically like a full top down rebuild at some point. All right, the Toronto Raptors. What is the end game for this season? And is Pascal Siakam capable of taking another leap forward?
2: I mean, he did. And that's part of the reason that their end game was to, you know, make the playoffs and be a threat to, you know, take on the Bucs again uh, in the Eastern Conference finals. I mean, they were way better than I think most of us thought they would be. I'll say that I was, I thought they were going to be very subpar and blow it up, but they didn't have to Pascal Siakam made the all-star team. Um, looked like continued to he basically carried over his playoff production um where he looked like unstoppable in the paint during a lot of games and um you know fred van vliet was better than i thought he would be and norman powell kind of came on and um they were good honestly they were very good 46 and 18 not what i expected at all
1: yep i was i was all for them blowing it up trading kyle lowry trading marcus all and just kind of rebuilding on the fly around Siakam and Van Bleet, but they they went the other direction, and we'll see how things play out. But I, I I don't think they quite have the firepower to to beat Milwaukee. But it wouldn't be surprising if it's if it's those two again in the Eastern Conference, which is pretty crazy considering one of those teams lost Kawhi Leonard last year. Right. All right, two teams remaining: Utah and Washington. The Utah Jazz will the bench, especially the backcourt, be good enough? And can Donovan Mitchell? take the next step to become a superstar.
2: One thing we didn't anticipate was Mike Conley being horrible to start the year. Um, I think the bench was fine. Uh, It it was a little like, it was kind of a lot of Jordan Clarkson towards the end of the year. Jeff green got like waved. It still wasn't very good. Um, But no Mitchell, Mitchell didn't take like the leap that I think a lot of people have been wanting him to take. Uh, but he did make the All Star team, so I mean, he made he made that much of a leap and that much of an impact, and he's obviously good. But he didn't he didn't take that that step into like superstardom that would have vaulted Utah to like the number two or three seed, where a lot of people thought they might be.
1: Yeah, his numbers are astonishingly similar from year to year, starting with his rookie season. I mean, the scoring has gone up a little bit, but the assists have really not changed at all. His, his steals went down this year, his blocks went down this year. His rebounding's been pretty stagnant. Um, I mean, he's still a very good player. 45% from the field, 36% from three. A lot of those are are difficult attempts. He's really the only guy on that team this season that that could create his own shot. You know, a lot of those are late in the shot clock, uh, and that's where Mike Conley was supposed to provide some relief. And and like you said, that did not happen. And based on the fact that they're, you know, they're a huge addition, the guy who was supposed to bring them to the next level was a complete flop like the fact that utah still was 18 games over 500 and probably right where we expected them to be before the season um says a lot just about like the infrastructure that they built
2: yeah and i mean getting bojan bogdanovich was huge for them yep he was really good uh he's jacking up seven threes a game making 41 percent. and royce o'neal is, uh, is you know not a huge impact player but underrated kind of a glue guy at like three positions for them so i mean he's still had a great season um, but I guess that just the question for their whole organization is how do they, how do you, how do you, how do they take the leap as an organization? I guess at this point,
1: worth noting by the way, that Bogdanovich underwent surgery this week and is not going to be available when the season returns.
2: Yeah. I kind of forgot about that. Um, yeah, I, that was hot. very, very low key. Like I he wasn't necessarily playing like he was hurt from a stats perspective, but he did, he did have some like bad games here and there. That I was just kind of confused on what was happening. And so I guess his hand was bothering him on some games more than others.
1: We finish out with the Washington Wizards. Our first question was, will the Wizards do the right thing with Bradley Beal? I think we meant trade him by that. And how many 2010 games will Thomas Bryant have? The answer to that one was three.
2: (laughs) Way fewer than I expected. Uh, Although he got hurt, too. He did. Um, He did, which was unfortunate. Because I thought... Man, I talk about someone I thought was going to take the leap uh, was Thomas Bryant, but he, he did not. Uh, yeah, they didn't trade Bradley Beal. I mean, he had a, I mean, obviously incredible season, kind of got snubbed from the All-Star game. Uh, I think we're going to look, I think we're going to look back in like five years or maybe, <laughs> maybe even next year and be like, you're telling me Bradley Beal averaged, you know, 30 points a game and didn't make the All-Star team. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, I mean, I know they want John Wall to come back and for that dynamic to kind of reemerge, but I, I think you got to find a way to, to trade Beal here.
1: I I agree, eventually. I, I think they owe it to to him and Wall to try this out. Like, I don't think they're going to trade him this summer uh, or this offseason, whatever, right. uh, however that shakes out. I think they'll try it next year, and I think there's a pretty good chance that it's going to crash and burn, and by... By midseason or by the end of next season, um, you know he, he's a more serious trade candidate just because I think his value is going to be way up there, and it's just going to make too much sense for them. Um, and there's also been talk too of the NBA perhaps putting in, uh, as 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 was the case I think back in like 2010 or 11 uh, when the the last CBA was struck, um, and possibly amending this one to include an amnesty, and it would it would be heartless in some ways, but in terms of business decision, if John Wall comes back and isn't 100% John Wall that we saw two years ago, I think you really seriously have to consider using that hypothetical amnesty on him. And at that point, it becomes a lot easier to to justify trading Beal and kind of starting over.
2: Right. Uh, maybe John Wall and Blake Griffin can form a super team on the Knicks or, or something like that.
1: Uh, I don't even say that. I I was, I was talking to my friend, <laughs> One of my friends yesterday, who's a Nets fan, and I sent him that that Daily News article from Stefan Bondi that um, in, in typical Daily News fashion was worded like the Nets are getting Brad Beal. But it was basically like the Nets like would like to trade for Brad Beal at some point, which is true for half of the league. Um, and he was like, I don't know if I want that. Like, I don't know if I'd want to give up, you know, Jared Allen and Karis LeVert or Karis LeVert and Spencer Dinwiddie and picks to go all in for a Durant, Kyrie, Beal core. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I mean, I think, I think that I mean that's the talent that you want. The question is, would they? How much would they piss each other off? I mean, all these guys want every single. All these guys want to take twenty shots a game. I, at least that's how I anticipate it. You know, Bradley Beal's been a second option, sort of, for a long time. I mean, he, I think him and Wall have been pretty neck and neck for the past couple of years. But um, yeah, I mean, Kyrie's going to want to take twenty a game. Beal's going to want to take twenty. Durant's going to want to take twenty. And I can see on certain nights, you know, those guys. Uh, taking a back seat. And I think there's a way the dynamic can work, but I think it would be an awkward dynamic. But if you are the, at the same time, if you're the Nets and you can get Beal and create this, you know, big three and you're giving up Levert, who is a good prospect, but injury prone, and you're giving up, you know, Jared Allen, again, good prospect, but is redundant with DeAndre Jordan there, even though that was your problem that you brought in. Um, I think you just do it like as skeptical as I am, if I was the GM of the nets and that opportunity presented itself, I would just pull the trigger and, and deal with it later.
1: Oh yeah, totally agree. That's what I said. I, I think, I think that's enough talent, Durant, Veal, Kyrie, um, that, that's enough of a grouping of talent that you're just willing to wing it and, you know, find a fifth starter, whoever it is, like just go find a, you know, market value, um, you know, kind of veteran to to fill that spot and just go top heavy and hope that it's enough. I I think the issue is you have Durant, who we haven't seen play since he tore his Achilles, and Kyrie, who's becoming even more of an injury liability than Durant, where I think if you go all in on that three and all three of them aren't healthy for 70-plus games, you know, not having that depth becomes a pretty major issue. But on the other hand, I don't feel that LaVert, Allen, or Dinwiddie are— are good enough that I would, that you're like really regret giving up on them. You know, maybe Levert takes that next step and becomes a really good player. If he, if he kind of has his own team somewhere else, but I don't think you're giving up like a potential superstar. You know, if that, if that's a deal and you have to give up some future picks, like I I feel like that's, that's plenty worth it. I, I think superstars have, have been traded for more and for less.
2: Yeah. And if you have, you know, Kyrie and if you just have Kyrie and Durant, and one of those guys gets hurt. I don't think I I mean, you know, those guys are good individually, but I don't think a singularly led Durant or a singularly led Kyrie team is gonna make a ton of waves anyway. And right. so I think you would almost want that third guy's backup, even if the depth suffers. You know, if Kyrie gets hurt, you have Beal and Durant, which is obviously good. They can do a lot right. with no depth and um the other way around, you know, every scenario possible, but yeah, I mean, you know, Dinwiddie is, is about to turn 27. Levert's sneaky, already about to turn 26. I don't think either of those guys are going to make a huge leap. I think considering the, the structure of the Nets, they've been given every opportunity to... They've been empowered in the organization. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't... I mean, I wouldn't be sweating about giving those guys up potentially for... I'd probably want to keep one of Dinwiddie or Levert, but mm-hmm. I mean to get Beal I think you just do it okay so we'll finish
1: on this what about the possibility of New Orleans or Boston swooping in should Beal become available Boston has the Jalen Brown piece Um, I think the question for them becomes does Beal and Tatum work even though those guys are very friendly they're from the same area grew up together I think they'd love to play together do their games mesh you know pretty similar players even though Tatum is more of a wing he's bigger uh, they're both kind of score first guys who could play make a little bit, but are primarily scorers. Um, and then for New Orleans, you know, you have you have some some physical assets and players, but you also have those future draft picks that you can package uh, that you got from the Lakers. Like, would it be worth? Would you give up like Lonzo and you know several of those picks to get Brad Beal, or you know Lonzo and I'm trying to think who, who else do they have on that roster that they could trade? Like, you're not trading Zion,
0: Josh know, Hart, Alex,
1: Josh Hart, Alexander Walker, um, Hayes. You might even—I mean—you might have to include like the Reddit contract or even like the Drew Holiday contract to make the money work. Um, but they're—they're a team like New Orleans is going to be out there in any deal just because they have all those picks.
2: Yeah, the interesting part is both of those teams have like the. You know, the, the, the Celtics have Kemba Walker already. Then I mean, you turn a, a Walker Beal dynamic, who are two very similar right. players, along with Tatum, who wants the ball, along with Gorgon Hayward, who is probably best as like a second secondary ball handler. So you're again I think you're assuming a ton of ball handler that team. Okay. Then that then I then I would be more comfortable with that. And not that they shouldn't do it because Hayward's there, but again, you know, that, that creates that that's a I think a harder dynamic than like the Beal Irving. Durant dynamic, just because there are so many competent ball handlers on that team. Um, but and kind of the same thing almost with um, the Pelicans with Holiday, Drew Holiday's there, Ingram is there who wants the ball, Zion's there who wants the ball. But I think I think I mean especially for the Pelicans. I mean if you can if you can find a way to keep Holiday, Ingram, and Zion and add Beal to that core, like that's that's a serious like you know i mean you're t- that team should not be any worse than like the 5th seed or the 6th seed in the in the western conference by any means i mean that team should be better than i mean that team has the potential to be better than Houston better than OKC better than Utah they'd probably bump up against Denver and LA you know the clippers and and the lakers but i mean that that would team would be you know potentially elite
1: all right any other news items or anything literally anything nba related you want to touch on before <laughs> we head out <laughs> Hey, any like NBA Two K developments?
2: Uh, no, no NBA Two K developments. Uh, I think news has been pretty slow. Um, yes, it has. Yeah, I saw. I saw Frank Kaminsky got the cops called on him because he was working out with uh, speakers in his backyard too loud, which is the most like Frank Kaminsky, like w- University of Wisconsin thing possible. You know, just like a guy who's really not that muscular in his backyard, blaring music and doing like push-ups. Yeah, Uh,
1: I'm I'm picturing him doing like the Lonzo Ball workout, like struggling (laughs) struggling mightily to put like a 45 pound bar above
2: his head. Dude, that Lonzo workout again was a was a huge concern. That's enough to like ship him off for Bradley Beal. Uh.
1: I think it might have killed his trade value. Honestly, that wasn't talked about enough. I think he got clowned on Twitter. Like, that should have that should have led first take for at least two days. The way things are going, like, LeBron possibly playing football has been the lead story for four consecutive days now.
2: That is, uh, that's insane. I, I thought that was over. I thought that debate was over, like, uh, you know, after he, like, won the title.
1: Well, I, th- I think LeBron himself re-sparked it. This past week, like after the Jordan baseball stuff, he was like, well, you know, I I was offered a contract by the Cowboys. I think (laughs) record, by the way, I think I think it's a great thing that he did not do that. Expectations would have been way too high. And I I think like if he really worked at it, he could have been good. But the chances of him getting hurt or just not being all that good because he hadn't played football in like a decade. And the last time he played football, it was at a high school level. I, I think he had a lot more to lose than than gain by playing one season of NFL football during a lockout.
2: I'm sure it would have been more ceremonial. Like, he'd just show up to the practice and he'd do the pregame warm-ups and, like, maybe run, like, a, you know, goal-line fade yeah. uh, at some point in the game. But it I feel like it would be more like when Tony Romo signed a contract with the Mavericks. Oh, uh, I
1: forgot about that.
2: That was really strange. That, that was incredibly strange. I remember when we were at work, like, do we add him to the the work database? Like, what do we do with this? like what is well, actually yeah, happened? He, he here? technically was on the roster, right? Yeah, he was technically on the roster. He could have technically gone into the game and played.
1: Yeah, I'm looking. He does not have a basketball reference page. I guess maybe you have to actually play a, a minute or of NBA basketball to get one
2: or at least be drafted. Uh, important question that will probably never get answered.
1: I'll, I'll get to the bottom of this. Don't worry. Okay, I think if we're talking about Tony Romo's basketball career, um, it's probably time to to hang it up. So we'll we'll call this one here, and you and I will be back next week.